0: Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
1: I mean, I think that you said in there, like, we're always feeling anxious about our money. And I think I would even expand that to be like, we're always feeling anxious. And when we're in a state of anxiety, where the tone of our nervous system is one of sympathetic or it's the stress response it's basically that fight or flight um or flee and and i think that When we're in that state, we're making choices from a place of scarcity, we're kind of backed up against a wall, we're thinking about survival. It's a very tunnel vision, uh, reactive state of mind. We spend very little time these days as modern humans in the parasympathetic or relaxation tone of our nervous system, where we do have more of a trusting, abundant um, outlook and we can make choices less reactively and more choosing how we want to respond.
0: Welcome to Everyone's talking Money podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Game. There's no judgment, no dumb questions, just smart conversations about you and your money. So come on in and grab a seat. Everyone is welcome here. We've all spent more time with family lately. It can feel like old times, but your mind is on the future too and what you can do to shape it. At Sandy Spring Bank, we work with clients to help them grow and protect their money with wealth management, trust services, and insurance, so they can enjoy today and ultimately pass along their wealth. We believe real banking is a conversation. Let's talk about your dreams. Visit sandyspringbank.com wealth. Wealth and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed, and may lose value. Welcome back to the show. It is so good to have you here. It is time to get our therapy on in this episode. This is probably one of the most important episodes we've done because it really hits at the heart of what we all feel about money. It is seriously stressful and causes a great deal of anxiety. There are also countless studies that show that money is the number one cause of stress and anxiety, and most of us are just left to figure out how to deal with it in a world where talking about money is still a taboo topic. I've also been so open with you and shared my own struggles with anxiety, depression, panic disorder, so there's no shame in admitting that you struggle too with money anxiety. As our guest, psychiatrist Dr. Ellen Vora, author of a new book called The Anatomy of Anxiety says, anxiety, it's all in your head, right? Wrong. Money anxiety is this complex topic with so many onion layers, and as Ellen says, anxiety often first begins in our bodies. We've dive into this complex topic of anxiety and talk about what goes on in your body when you're anxious, how to make decisions when you're feeling anxious, tips and techniques to manage your anxiety, and how to figure out what your money anxiety is actually telling you. Are you ready for a little financial therapy? Let's start talking. Ellen, I'm I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. I read your book, reached out to you. I very openly, honestly, on this show talk about my own struggles with anxiety and depression, panic, or you name it. And uh, we talk a lot about how our thoughts and feelings around money really impact our actions and behaviors. And I know anxiety is is something that a lot of us are are really stuck in, particularly around money. So thanks for joining us for a great
1: conversation. Mm, thanks for having me, and thank you for being a one-woman army speaking out about mental health struggles. They're so universal, but the more we talk about it, we decrease the stigma and, and make it safe for other people to come forward.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, it's it feels like it wouldn't be right to especially talk about a subject like money that... Really touches all aspects of our lives and not talk about the mental side of money, which as, as a money expert myself, really um, it really frustrates me that other people don't really talk about that aspect because we know that money is the number one stressor for so many people. We also know that uh, some of the stats you talked about in your book that more than 40 million people suffer from anxiety. You talked about in your book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, that the us is actually one of the most anxious countries which i believe (laughs) um and and we also know that we've kind of come out of a really tough three years here with covid and have seen and felt the impacts of anxiety and fear really multiply for so many of us so i'm curious you know how have our brains and even bodies really changed from your perspective in the last three years dealing with just all of this anxiety together
1: Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, I mean, in a way, what we've gone through here is a collective trauma, a collective grief, and often also a very personal grief, and so much change. And on the one hand, it actually brings to the forefront something that um, we started to get very triggered early on in the pandemic that there was no certainty, we didn't know what next week would look like. And we as human beings really do not like that. We like <laughs> certainty. We like control, something to feel predictable, something to feel assured. And in a sense, this was actually just bringing to the forefront something that's always been true. Nothing is guaranteed. Nothing is certain. The only thing that's permanent is impermanence. And and I think that um, it gave us all a crash course in having to get really uh, comfortable with um N- not having anything laid out for us with guarantees. Mm.
0: Yeah, I I definitely agree. I think a lot of my anxiety is rooted in control, probably feeling out of control and not knowing what to do and and certainly um, I no longer work with with people uh, one-on-one financially, but I did for about 10-12 years and it was really interesting because no matter the amount of money people had no matter their age no matter their demographic when you really got down to the root of of everything most people had some anxiety around money and they just didn't know how to express it or maybe didn't even know that it that it existed and you know then i talked to some of my friends the last couple of years and they kind of were like well i guess i just have to lean into this idea that even though I have a plan, that plan might not happen. And even though I have a job, I might lose my job and that it's okay rather than being freaked out.
1: Like it's okay for me to just lean into the uncertainty. Yeah. I mean, you're taking us down a deep philosophical (laughs) path and, you know, we could have the material conversation around the fact that the pandemic has left us, you know, many of us more inflamed, a little bit more looped into certain addictive relationships with substances, um, less getting our need for social connection, more glued to our screens and various social media platforms. And all of that has done a number on our mental health in all kinds of ways. But there is also this fundamental Philosophical question around money is at the center of um, the vulnerability of being human, and this feeling of at the very end of the day, um, we're going to die, we're going to lose the people we love, there may be suffering, and we all understandably try to prepare and try to avoid this as much as possible. And so, this is all at the center of anxiety: is, is questions around certainty and, and questions around control. And, and I think that we, I think that the anxiety epidemic urges us to reconsider what we have always assumed is what gives us safety and assurance. You know, money is part of that conversation. We think if we have savings, if we have a plan, that that's part of what gives us a reassurance, but there is really no escaping ultimate impermanence. And so I think it's, to me, I get more enduring comfort from a more resilient mindset around making meaning from the unfolding events in my life. And that's like a very wordy, garbled concept, but it's not spiritual bypassing of everything happens for a reason. But it's basically reminding myself that when things go wrong, when the worst case scenario happens, that I will be able to make meaning of how that plays out. And I will be able to find a through line to the ways that I am still okay, even when things really are not okay. And that for me has been a much more comfortable foundation to stand on.
0: Wow, that is pretty powerful just to think of it in that perspective. I really, I really like that, that reframe. I, I, something I wanted to talk about in your book, you, um, you talk about that central to our understanding of anxiety is also understanding what you call the difference between false anxiety and true anxiety, and it blew my mind because I never knew there was actually a difference that it, I thought it was just it's just anxiety. So walk us through this a little bit. like what's the difference between these two?
1: Yeah. And I want to give credit to a woman named Julia Ross, who um, in her book, The Mood Cure, she really first opened my eyes to this idea that we have false moods. And those, we have our real moods. That's when something happened and we're in a mood as a result. And a very typical example would be we've experienced a loss and we're grieving. We lost our job and we're stressed and scared and sad and, and feeling shame and all kinds of feelings. And, then there's our false moods and those are the times when seemingly out of nowhere we're suddenly irritable or anxious or sad or angry our mind is always all too happy to swoop in with a narrative to tell us, make an explanation for why we feel the way we feel. It'll say, well, I'm anxious because I got that email from my boss and it seems to suggest if I read between the lines that I'm underperforming, right, right. Well, You know, our brain will always make meaning. Um, but what's actually happening in that moment is something physical, physiologic. We're in some state of imbalance and that tips our body into a stress response and it shows up as the sensation of anxiety. And so our, the story we tell ourselves is really just our brain attempting to make meaning of what is first and foremost a physical sensation. And I find this to be so revolutionary. It doesn't take away our stressors or our problems. But it speaks to the fact that we are going through our lives in all kinds of states of physical imbalance. And it's creating a lot of unnecessary suffering. So I think of this as avoidable anxiety. It doesn't have to be happening. It doesn't have to be happening to the degree that it's happening. Even if we have real stressors in our lives, we are experiencing them as heavier and more overwhelming when we are in a blood sugar crash and over, you know, over caffeinated, underslept, hungover, all of that is making our problems harder. And does it
0: help us if Let's say we're in one of those moments, maybe we got that email from our boss, and suddenly we go down this kind of brain path of thinking, okay, I'm going to get fired, and then I'm not going to have an income, and then I'm not going to be able to pay my bills, you know, kind of the the train wreck that happens in our brains. Does it help us in moments like that to be able to kind of have these pause moments and say, okay, wait a minute, like, what is actually happening? Like, what is actually true? What is actually, you know... I don't know what whatever I'm sort of the story I'm making up in our my head like does it help us to pause and really think that through?
1: Yes. And I think that there's something even more effective in those instances. And so I think keeping our physiology stable, you know, prioritizing early bedtime, making sure we're getting good sleep, being a little bit less hopped up on caffeine, less hungover, keeping our blood sugar stable, keeping ourselves nourished and not inflamed, healthy gut, all of that can help us be more resilient and more clear and grounded in the face of our stressors. That said, I think that moment when we get the email from the boss, there's nothing quite like mindfulness meditation, yoga, Breathwork practices to help us catch that spiral before it goes full force, and to me, that's a mindfulness effect. Is can we rather than going zero to sixty in that moment with the catastrophizing and the jumping to conclusions and worst case scenario thinking of "I'm going to lose my job," "I'm going to end up in a gutter," um, which is you know sometimes the full logical extreme of where our brain goes after an email like that. Um, we want to catch ourselves and just take a pause. And I love mindfulness meditation for this. I especially love whenever someone says to me, well, I don't like meditating. I'm bad at meditating. And what we mean when we say that is, well, I try to sit down and clear my mind or focus on my breath, but then my mind keeps running all over the place. And I think about an email I have to write and that I have to pick up milk and I have to make a doctor's (laughs) appointment and our mind just goes all over the place. And that's actually not a failure of meditation. That is the gig. And every time our mind wanders, if we catch it and pull it back to the breath or whatever we've chosen to focus on, it is like doing a rep, like a little bicep curl for this very atrophied muscle of present moment awareness, which is very weak in all of us. And so if we, every time we catch ourselves being like, mm, what should I have for dinner? And then being like, oh, I'm meditating, but I'm thinking about what I should have for dinner. <laughs> and we bring it back to the breath. We're strengthening our muscle of present moment awareness. And then when we get the email from the boss and we're about to spiral, we have a strong muscle that says, hold up, come back to the breath. We don't know what this means yet. This can mean a lot of different things. Let's take it one step at a time.
0: Yeah, and and bringing that up, I'm glad you did. Um, I, I was reading in your book. You you talk about this idea that people always just say. I mean, I've had this said to me so many times. I think everyone listening can relate. Just relax, right? If you tell someone mm-hmm. I'm anxious, they're like, "Well, why don't you just relax?" You know, and you're like, "It's not that easy," but uh, we know that that doesn't actually actually work. And I love you say this that sitting is the new smoking and exercise is the new Xanax and you talk about dancing, listening to shamanic music, getting outside, and you just talked about mindfulness meditation. So I'm, I'm wondering like if you have any other suggestions for us if we're feeling kind of stuck in those moments, whether it is anxiety or anxious moment or maybe like a full on panic attack of kind of other tips or techniques that we can use to just jog our brain out of that that moment
1: yeah I, I mean I love when someone's like just <laughs> relax it's, it's so actively unhelpful and I have some choice words to say in response usually <laughs> but um, but I think that um, it, it, I say this in the book I am really a deep deep nuanced, and, you know, have all too much to say about how we prevent ourselves from getting to a point of panic in the first place. And I could write about that for like hundreds and hundreds of pages. And then I would say I'm like average or slightly below average at what do you do once you've already passed the point of no return and you're panicking? I'm like, shoot, I don't know. <laughs> but what I, what I do personally is um, I there are a lot of different things and everyone's drawn to something different. And some people go outside, splash cold water on their face, movement outdoors, um some kind of practice of counting down the things in the room like if you can identify um, seven things that you can see and six things that you can hear and five things that you can touch and four things that you can smell and so on and so forth and interspersing box breathing where you're inhaling or your box breathing or the four seven eight breath like inhaling to the kind of four Holding to the count of seven, exhaling to the count of eight, not straining if it's hard in that moment, but being really easy, having a light grip with that can be helpful. The thing I personally do is um, I love music and dancing for this. I feel like you need to move the energy, but the most effective strategy for me is shaking. And it's a weird one, but basically I use shamanic drum music, which on its own helps sync up our brain waves with a theta wave pattern. So it's very relaxing relaxing and then I just shake. And I think part of why that's so effective is that it's reminiscent of what a lot of animals in the animal kingdom yes. do after a life or death stressor, right? So they have a an instinct to shake, which I think discharges excess adrenaline and seems to communicate to the nervous system that the threat has passed and it's now safe to be in our bodies. And so I put on shamanic drum music, I shake for a minute or two, and it seems to um, completely press Control Alt Delete on my nervous system.
0: Yeah, I, we have a a puppy, an eight month old puppy, Winnie, and we're always laughing at her. Not laughing at her, but we enjoy watching her shake, like shake it off, shake it off. You know, and I always think, like, why can't I do that as an adult? Like, who cares what I look like? And whatever the circumstances, just have a good shake. I mean, right? There's got to be something something to that.
1: It it's. You you can do it and the very fact that it looks strange and is weird and not normal, I think is part of what's therapeutic about it. Because we go through our lives constantly deferring to what looks normal, what would be appropriate, and our poor bodies are just getting molded into that and never getting to express what they need. So if we just turn off the lights, close the door, draw the shade, shake for a couple minutes and let our body call the shots and say, well, here's what I feel like doing. Here's how I feel like moving. Even just that practice of listening to our bodies and honoring what it needs and letting it get out its sillies can be so therapeutic. And we need more of that.
0: Coming back a little bit to to talking about money specifically and anxiety, I just, I want to share a quick little story with you before before I ask you a question. But we had somebody on the show a couple months ago and we were talking about money personalities. And um, we took this quiz and, and my husband, Jeff, who's the producer on this show, he um, took the quiz and it came out that he was an anxious spender and we can all pretty much understand what that is and then it came out that i was what's called a maximalist where i just kind of go big or go home right so we had these hmm. two very different ways of coming about money and money decisions and we we bring that into our everyday life and our everyday uh, conversations whether it is vocalized or not vocalized, that's kind of what we're bringing in. And when I think about money, specifically in in a partnership, it's tricky because you got two people who probably don't have a good relationship with money at, at the onset, come with a lot of baggage from childhood, a lot of things that maybe you don't know are kind of under the surface there. And then that can create, you know, an anxiety in itself. You each might have anxiety around money. And then when you come together, it's just like this You know tornado of anxiety and and i know a lot of couples have arguments and and you know a lot of my friends are like why why are we always arguing about money you know and it it comes down to like when you peel all the onion layers back that there's a deep anxiety that exists because you're coming from these two different perspectives so you know thinking about anxiety like particularly in a relationship and particularly through the lens of money how do we as partners try to understand, uh, you know, our own anxiety that we bring to the table. And then how do we begin to like bridge that as, as, a, as a couple so we don't let the anxiety just like ruin
1: our relationship? Ooh, Shanna, it's a question I would rather ask you than <laughs> you ask me. I will explore this out loud a little bit, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I mean, I don't, I don't understand money. That is not my area of expertise. Um, I understand appetites. And that's a a part of how I work with mental health is really understanding the foods we eat, our cravings, our satiety signals, all of that. And I've often thought that our cravings, like when we're anxious, when we're emotionally eating, when, when we kind of want comfort food, things like that, on some level what's happening is it's a reactivation of the very primitive, primal, original desire for basically to be breastfeeding
0: Ooh. like we
1: want to be back in our mother's arms nursing because that is nourishment and safety and comfort and love all at the same time and like isn't that kind of what we need yes. as human That's right. beings And so I, you know, I look at someone like, and I'm not above this. I did this in my 20s, like binging on a pint of ice cream for me was like as close as it could get to being back to breastfeeding. And and in in a sense, like in those moments, what I do now, when I really feel like I need comfort, I need safety, I need love, I need nourishment, is I try to meet those needs in a more authentic way than binging on comfort foods. Um, If it's nourishment, I focus on nutrient-dense real foods. If it's Love, like I, I kind of speak up and and communicate with my partner. Like I really need to feel seen or witnessed or understood or loved in this moment, um, and that there are all these other ways to get our desires for comfort and safety met. And can we do it in other ways? And I think in what you're bringing up is like maybe other ways than going on a spending spree or, you know, trying to get back to a hit of dopamine and a feeling of we're okay through ways that aren't necessarily serving us in relationships. Ooh, I just, I love the work of Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication where we can get back to basically rather than all of these accusatory you statements like you're ridiculous and you're profligate and you're going to spend us out of house and home it's basically talking about ourselves and our own needs And we reframe it as like well i feel like i have a need for security and i have a need to feel understood or i have a need to celebrate this milestone in my life And to communicate it in that way and give someone else an opportunity to help us meet that need, but not an obligation, just an opportunity to help enrich our lives. I'm going to be real with you. Identity theft is
0: on the rise and you do not want to wake up one morning and discover that your bank account has been emptied or you're overdue on credit cards you never even applied for. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ETM to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ETM. It's interesting because I also am very open about uh, going to marriage therapy and uh, believing in therapy. And we, you know, have have been learning. My husband and I are married almost nine years now. We've been learning this idea of particularly in a moment of anxiety or argument what do you need and it sounds so easy like when you're talking about you know just saying okay well right now I feel like I need a hug but when you're in the moment it's it's just like your brain goes like a cuckoo and you can't even really think about it you know it's hard for me to like at the at, after an argument or after an anxious moment i'm like oh okay now i can think about like what i should have said or what i should have done but it's it's i feel like it's um like a bridge that all of us are trying to cross to get to the point where we can really understand what's going on in our in our brains and bodies to be able to communicate in
1: such a way Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that helps make us more efficient at kind of cutting through, like there are so many different, it's like, what do we need in that moment? How do we navigate that? We have patterns. And (laughs) like my partner often needs physical affection. He needs, you know, just to feel really loved and cherished and uh, something physically grounding about that. I'm really different. I I don't need that, nor do I even necessarily want that all the time. I need to process. (laughs) Big surprise, a psychiatrist. I need to talk about what's on my mind, and I need to work it out out loud and feel really witnessed and kind of have a safe space to talk about where I feel like a failure, where I feel ashamed, where I feel unsure of myself. Like I just need to talk about that out loud. And when I carry it inside and don't express it, it's overwhelming, it's a burden. And when I can talk about it and let it be out in the air, out sanitized by sunshine and witnessed by someone who really sees me and cares about me, that's so deeply therapeutic for my process.
0: And kind of piggybacking on that thought, um, I I know that it's really hard for us to make good decisions, let alone a good money decision, when we're feeling anxious. It just it just for whatever reason is not a good time to certainly make any choices with your money. But so many of us do it because we just always feel anxious uh, with with our money. And I'm curious, you know, um, just about the decision making process in general when we're when we're feeling anxious. Like what is going on in our in our brains and our bodies that um maybe is making that you know not a great moment to to make a decision?
1: Mm, great question. I mean, I think that you said in there like we're always feeling anxious about our money, and I think I would even expand that to be like we're always feeling anxious, and when we're in a state of anxiety where the tone of our nervous system is one of sympathetic or it's the stress response it's basically that fight or flight um or flee and and I think that. When we're in that state, we're making choices from a place of scarcity, we're kind of backed up against a wall, we're thinking about survival. It's a very tunnel vision, uh, reactive state of mind. We spend very little time these days as modern humans in the parasympathetic or relaxation tone of our nervous system, where we do have more of a trusting, abundant Um, outlook and we can make choices less reactively and more choosing how we want to respond so um, i think that the key here is actually tipping our nervous system into a parasympathetic tone and that's That's sort of the first, call it 100 pages of my book, is all of the Mr. Fix-It actionable strategies that we need to put into practice to keep ourselves out of constant relentless stress responses. But the sort of good news and bad news all at the same time is it's more in our hands than we realize. And that's good news because it's hopeful and it's empowering and there's something we can do to change how anxious we are. It's a little overwhelming is the bad news because it's like, shoot, I thought this was just my genes and it wasn't my fault. and There's nothing to be done about it. But, you know, there's a lot that we can do to make a difference. And sometimes it's it's overwhelming to think about all the things that we can do. But um, we don't need to do it all. We kind of need to pick a few and start there. And it for one person, it could be an earlier bedtime and prioritizing better sleep, maybe getting blue blocking glasses or keeping the phone out of the bedroom at night just to protect sleep. Someone else might keep their blood sugar stable with like a spoonful of almond butter at every few hours. Um, someone else might decrease their caffeine, might take a few more nights off of drinking. A lot of people are like, nope, not starting there. No, thank you. And that's fine. Um, and we can just pick which diet and lifestyle strategies feel approachable to us. And if we can adjust them slightly, we can just be less anxious in the first place. And that can free up a lot more abundant trusting thinking around money.
0: I like that idea that it 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 could be these small shifts, right? We don't have to make these big you know, sweeping changes in our lives that we can actually feel less anxious with some of some of these kind of small things. And um, you know, I've shared this story on the podcast before that I went through this period of time where I hated looking at my ATM receipts. Like I would get an ATM, remember, remember when you used to go to the ATM, <laughs> I'm like dating <laughs> myself here, but uh, you would get an ATM receipt and I would just like fold it up and like shove it in my wallet. And it wasn't that I didn't have money in my bank account it was whatever story was going on in my head that just you know as we talked about earlier would just you know um like a train wreck in my head and i thought this is really crazy and it was recognizing my own money anxiety that made me realize oh i I have to help other people with this because i think we're all kind of in the same place and one of the things you talk about in the book is is needing to figure out what your anxiety is telling you and I find that really interesting. You know, how do we figure it out? Like, how do we figure out what our anxiety is actually saying to us?
1: Mm, I mean, with anxiety, it's, it's so different for all of us. And I feel like I like to start with the avoidable anxiety. That's the low-hanging fruit and the quick wins. You kind of address all of that and have someone be more physiologically balanced. And it clears the air. And then it gets easier to get still and slow down and drop in and start to get curious about our stories about we have this nudging true anxiety but it's tapping us on our shoulder all the time it usually has some inner truth it has some call to action baked into it and it really varies person to person it can be grand it can be minor and local it can be you really should call your grandma more often (laughs) or it can be there's this activist cause that you should be on the front lines of and i think and everything in between And so it's really individual, but it's some way that our deep inner truth knows we're out of alignment and we need to course correct. I think with those money stories, that just makes me think about um, attachment patterns. It's interesting to have like a money expert talk to a mental health expert and realize all this <laughs> overlap. Oh, right? there's because
0: so much overlap. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's it's what's modeled for us um, in childhood. You know, we, what in childhood, everything is modeled for us. You know, how someone holds themselves accountable, how a marriage might look, um, what attachment feels like. And certainly money stories are something that are modeled for us in a million different ways by our primary caregivers. And if they had a scarcity story, if they had um, a a story of like money is, you know, the focus or here's what solves life or, you know, like we internalize all of those stories. And I feel like in general, a really beautiful process of adulting is reexamining all the stories that we just take for granted that we learned. And in the same way that we're children learning, okay, gravity exists and this is up and this is down. Um, We also learn, you know, here's how money works. Here's how attachment operates in our lives. And a lot of that gravity, not so much, but the other things we learn, uh, we've internalized it just as much as a fundamental truth of the universe, but it's not. And we can reexamine it and come to a new story. We can write our own scripts.
0: And another thing that uh, I want to talk about for a minute, because I know it causes me a lot of anxiety and when I think about it, it, it makes me laugh that it does, but it does. Social media, right? We all um, either want to be on social media or we're on social media. We want somebody to notice or like our picture or whatever it might be, right? And I feel like specifically if we talk about money, I mean, there's a lot of comparison. We're comparing ourselves against people all day long on social media and creates all other level of anxiety. So tell me a little bit about like, social media. Like, How do we... How do we think about or balance this specifically when it comes to our
1: anxiety? Yeah, it's kind of funky out there, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, on some level, part of that compare and despair, it's, it's worse on social anxiety, but it draws on something that's always been true for us. We've always felt that keeping up with the Joneses feeling of like what's immediately around us, our neighbors, is this benchmark of what we should be striving for. And if they're ahead or we're ahead, that will affect our mood. Um but it, you know, it's always very myopic and not looking at, you know, we're not actually competing with our neighbors We're there's not actually a competition. And, um, and just to kind of pan back out to what are our true values. And usually it has nothing to do with what we're comparing and despairing about. Um, but I think social media with filters and with the narrowness of a lens and sort of what it captures about a person's life or day or room it, it it can be so distorting and and we're of course comparing that snapshot of a very thin slice of someone's life on their highlight reel with the full messiness of our whole lives and um it's it's not apples to oranges uh, or it's not apples to apples and so i think that um overall social media i have this line in my book around like internet, and the devices in general, it's like, use it, but don't let it use you. And I think that there's a lot of learning that we can do on social media, we can connect with people that we feel in alignment with, we can spread our message, like there are good things happening there. Um, But if we let it use us, then we can just be preyed on. And the The people who have designed these companies, they really have done their homework and they know their neuroscience and their behavioral psychology. And in this attention economy that we are living in, where our attention is the commodity uh, being competed for... Our mental health is often the collateral damage because they know that if they prey on our fear response and if they instill uncertainty or fear or doubt or controversy, we will rubberneck. We will hand over an increasingly large share of our attention. They get more clicks, more revenue, but we are depressed and anxious and we can't sleep. So we just need to be so conscious in how we navigate the information landscape. We need to make choices from a place of radical self-love and awareness. And if we're getting some benefit from Instagram, great. But if we're just in a zombied out state scrolling and feeling more and more insecure and down on ourselves um, and and anxious and overwhelmed, we need to shut it down. And I'm not saying that's easy. I think that these devices are addictive, but we need to make a priority of getting to a different relationship with it.
0: I love this. I honestly would use urnin in lots of different ways, but what's on my mind recently is I need a night out. I need some good tacos to sip on a few virgin margaritas and celebrate you all helping this podcast earn 26 million downloads. Make Earning a part of your financial routine and join Earning's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earning, I think about financial stability and security. Gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earning Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earning app, type in Talkin' Money under podcast when you sign up. It will really help the show. Talking money under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However, you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. This message that you're talking about of really creating self love. And I think if we all just you know, maybe did one thing a day that felt loving to ourselves, we could change the world quite a bit. I don't know, maybe I'm just um, a bit hopeful that that, that actually could happen. Uh, and and something else I really, I really just want to touch on as, as we close our conversation here is I know that there's probably somebody listening that's like, okay, Ellen, yes, I know I'm anxious, I have these moments, um, you know, money makes me anxious, social media might whatever it might be, but I don't have a lot of money to to go to a therapist or, you know, to deal with my anxiety. Do you have any suggestions, if somebody's listening in that place, of ways they could work on their anxiety or or I don't know, any free resources that might be available to somebody?
1: Well, this is actually at the heart of my approach to mental health and we, we've we had a precipitous rise in our already epidemic levels of depression and anxiety through the pandemic. People are really struggling. And for anyone out there who has attempted to find care, attempted to access mental health care, they know firsthand that um, we have a bad situation on our hands. There are not many providers that will work with our insurance, or if they do, then they might have a multi-week or month wait list, or they're not taking new patients at all. And even if we make it through all of these hoops and obstacles, we might sit across from someone and be like, this is not a good fit. There's not the right chemistry here. They don't get it. And, um, And then even if we find the right person, there is really disappointing efficacy of our interventions. And I'm not here to stigmatize medication at all. And if somebody's listening right now and they've been helped by meds, this is a great thing. But I count that as a victory. I'm in the business of decreasing human suffering. And if meds have done that for you, this is fantastic. But I'm speaking to the millions of people for whom it's been unsatisfactory at relieving their symptoms so people can start to feel really defeated and demoralized and feel like okay well the limited menu of offerings therapy medication didn't work for me and so now i'm just stuck and and that can be such a bad feeling so i'm here to say there's reason for hope we are never stuck and it's really um it's it's something that my field has to be accountable to, which is that we've offered a very limited menu of um, what the ways we support our mental health. And it has overlooked a list of, I think, about 50 things that are the real determinants of our mental health, which is our sleep and our n- nutrition and inflammation levels and hormone levels and um, our relationship to our gut health, and then also these fundamental human needs for community and nature, being of service, finding meaning and purpose in our lives. And even though there's not a whole lot we can do about our genes, there's so much that we can do about these environmental determinants of our mental well-being. And so I'm kind of here to say that if we put all of our hope on the field of mental health, we're gonna have a lot of barriers to getting effective care and treatment, but I think that many of us can start with safe, non-invasive, inexpensive, accessible diet and lifestyle interventions that aren't soft science. They're not like a lesser way of approaching our mental health. In many ways, they're actually addressing the true root cause of our mental health issues. So we can start there. It doesn't have to be behind a paywall. It doesn't have to be gatekept or off in the ivory tower of medicine. It's something we can do for ourselves
0: to wrap this up, we we have been talking about a very heavy subject, anxiety, and I'm sure everybody listening here has their own story. So I feel like we we need a collective breath here, but we've talked about so much, but I'm I just, I, I'm kind of left with these questions, right? Like this is normal, right? I mean, we're, we're all going to be okay if, if we're suffering from anxiety. I, I'm wondering, Alan, do you have any words of inspiration that you can leave us with? Those of us struggling with whatever kind of anxiety that we might have, to just know that we can, I don't know, find a place of peace, that we can use some of these tools and we can
1: start feeling some relief on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, I think that i am I'm not going to fully embrace that word normal. And that's not to say that there's any shame or stigma here, but these states of mind are common, but I don't accept them as our destiny or the only way it can be right now. I think that there is a certain amount of true anxiety, purposeful anxiety that's at play in this moment. And that's not what's wrong with us. In many ways, that's what's right with us when we feel viscerally connected to what's not right in this world. And so we want to listen to and honor our purposeful anxiety. But we also are swimming in a stew of avoidable anxieties. And they're common, but I don't think it's normal And I don't want people suffering unnecessarily. So I really encourage people to make a few small, accessible diet and lifestyle interventions to decrease some of that burden of avoidable unnecessary anxiety. And for one person that could be an earlier bedtime or decreasing coffee, or just keeping your blood sugar stable, or just taking magnesium glycinate at bedtime. There's so many small things we can do. I have like a hundred pages of like little strategies we can do and um it really can make a difference so i want people to feel hopeful that you're not stuck feeling this way there's certainly nothing wrong with you and there's nothing to be ashamed of but let's roll up our sleeves and get a little bit to work so that you don't have to struggle quite so much
0: i told you it would be like having your own money anxiety therapy session wasn't that great i also gently nudged ellen to start her own podcast because her voice is so soothing i feel like she really invited us into this healing process around our own money anxiety. I think it's also really interesting to think about some of those adjustments to our lifestyle, like the food we eat and the sleep we need in order to just minimize our anxiety and give us some feeling of control. I hope you found some good tools you can use to get back to a more balanced, just less anxiety-filled life. If you want to learn more about Ellen, you can find her at ellenvoramd on Instagram And her life's work is contained in her book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. You can find her book anywhere books are sold. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with someone right now who also needs to have a little less anxiety around money. As always, you can head to the show notes for all the links to our episode guest, as well as the amazing sponsors that make this show possible. I'll see you back here in a few days for a brand new episode.